two things that I really like that often don't come together or don't necessarily fit together really nicely, but when they get brought together are really exciting to me. Movies, especially comedies, and words. I like big words. Again, those two things don't necessarily match really easily or uh, they don't make sense necessarily going together. Very different categories. But one of the places where those two things really come together well and I find really fun and exciting are in the movie The Princess Bride. And it, yeah! How many of you are familiar with The Princess Bride? So for those of you who are not, uh, Princess Bride is a satire of, uh, it's a satire and there are these villains who are not super villainous. They're kind of quirky and weird. And one of the villains' name is Vizini. He's this old, short, bald guy with a, with a high voice. And he, he tries to be like this, this master villain. And he tries to come off as super smart, super wise, super intelligent. And he tries to use all of these big words. And one of these words that he uses incessantly, big word, over and over again, is what? Anybody would know? Inconceivable. He says it like that, and it's like over and over and over again. And he uses it so much that his comrades, his other bad guys who are coming along with him, just get super sick of it. And at one point, one of the, his comrades, whose name is Indigo Montoya, finally confronts him and says what? For, again, for those of you who know this movie, what does he say in response to inconceivable? You keep on using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. I love that line. I love using the, the gif or the gif with, that has that line in it. Um, but I, I use that line, or I think of that line a, a lot, not only to, like, I don't try to shame other people for using a word that they don't necessarily know what it means, uh, but I also try to use that on myself to think through, am I using a word like it ought to be used, or am I just trying to use a big word? It's like keeping myself in check. So during this period of Lent, this 46-day period that is in preparation for Easter, we have been in this series, which we have been calling Polarized. It's been all about polarization. And I think that polarization is one of these words that's really hot right now, is thrown around like crazy, and yet it's often a word that people don't, they use it, but they don't necessarily, it doesn't necessarily mean what they think it means. Polarization is sometimes used as like, well, this is something that is controversial or something that we don't necessarily agree on. Uh, but polarization, the image that we've wanted to convey over the course of this series, is polarization being this thing that no matter how hard you try to bring different uh, people of different ideologies or beliefs or values together, Polarization is that invisible but very real force that forces them apart. No matter how hard you try to force them together, they cannot be forced together. And so during this series, we've tried to keep that, that metaphor in mind, that image in mind, and say there's a lot of things, there's a lot of things over which we cannot agree, over which 
our identity or our beliefs or values, no matter how hard we try to bring them together, they will and, and can and often uh, are required to force us apart. What does it mean for us to live in a polarized time and yet figure out how to live together? Because we live around people who are different from us. We live in a country with over 300 million people. We live in a world with nearly 8 billion people. There's just the logistical thing of we got to figure out how to live with people who are different from us and maybe drive us away from each other. And then we've also said that uh, as, as those who say that we are followers of Jesus, Jesus was intimately involved in this work of bringing people together, even and especially when they disagreed or were polarized by one another. And so if we say that we follow Jesus, we ought to be involved in the same type of work that Jesus was involved in. This is something I've been saying every single week as a part of this series. Well, today I actually want to dive into what that kind of looked like for Jesus himself. What was that work of trying to bring polarized people together? What did that actually look like on the ground? And, and to get at that, uh, we're actually going to go back to the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, at the very beginning of Jesus' work in the gospel according to Luke, which is one of the four biographies about the, the life of Jesus. So Jesus is born, shocker, uh, Jesus grows up, Jesus is then baptized. After being baptized, he goes out into the wilderness for 40 days. And then after 40 days in the wilderness, he reemerges towards civilization and he goes to his hometown. And in his hometown, he's going to kick off his ministry. And what I want you to think of is, uh, think of Jesus being like one of those politicians who is about to kick off his campaign for something. So he goes back to his hometown. He's going to give this uh, initial campaign kickoff address. What are the things that he's going to say about his ministry that are going to kind of lay the foundation for everything that is going to come? So this appears in Luke chapter 4. And we'll start in verse 14. Then Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and news about him spread throughout the surrounding countryside. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by all. Now Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and the regaining of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to tell them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled, even as you have heard it being read. Again, Jesus is in his hometown, he's kicking off his campaign, and he's laying out his policy objectives. These are the most important things that you need to know about what my campaign, what my mission, what my ministry is going to involve. And in order to do that, he goes back to this public truth teller, this prophet from the Old Testament named Isaiah. He says, you want to know what I care about and what I want the people who follow me to care about? Here's what you need to know. This whole thing is a good news for the poor, release for captives, 
sight to the blind, freedom for the oppressed, and the year of God's favor, the Lord's favor. Interestingly enough, he actually cuts off Isaiah and he does not include what Isaiah includes. He does not say anything about this is a time of God's vengeance. I will let you read into that what you will. Uh, but he, he does not include that in his policy objectives. But again, he's laying this all out here saying, these are the most important things that I'm going to care about and the people who follow me are going to have to care about as well. But also like a, a politician kicking off a campaign, you don't just say all of the policy initiatives. You have to have a good like tagline, right? This is, this is the, the handful of words that are really going to summarize the whole vibe of what this, this mission is going to be about so that people can easily say, oh, that's what he cares about. That is why I'm following him and what I'm going to care about as well. So as he goes on, what he eventually gets around to is this short saying that is summing up everything what Jesus is going to be about is the good news of the kingdom. You might hear the kingdom of God, you might hear the kingdom of heaven, but it is the good news of the kingdom. Now, there have been some really good slogans for political campaigns throughout the years. Uh, this one has lasted for 2,000 years, folks, and we're still talking about the good news of the kingdom. Now, when you hear that, you might think of a great many things, and we will get into more of that in, in just a couple of minutes. But what I want you to think of when you think of the good news of the kingdom, first of all, the kingdom of God. What I want you to think of when you hear the kingdom of God is the place and the time when things are made right and God gets what God wants. God's vision for the world comes into being. The kingdom of the God is when things are made right. And the good news, good news is uh, the Greek word that Jesus would have used was euangelion, probably less familiar than what it often gets transliterated to, which is gospel. So Jesus arrives on the scene, he lays off his policy objectives, and he says, really what I need you to do, the takeaway that I need you to have is that all of this is about the gospel of the kingdom of God where things are made right and God gets what God wants. This is the motivating vision for all of his ministry. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter uh, what your background is. It doesn't matter whether you are a pacifist or an insurrectionist. You are all welcome to be a part of this thing, this good news, this gospel of the kingdom. This is what we are going to unite around. Sounds pretty good, right? Everybody can clearly unite around this motivating vision, right? Mm, pretty quickly we get an indication that that's not going to be the case. So here's what happens immediately after he says this thing. All were speaking well of him and were amazed at the gracious words coming out of his mouth. They said, isn't this Joseph's son? Jesus said to them, no doubt you will quote to me the proverb, physician, heal yourself and say, what we have heard that you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown too. And he added, I tell you the truth, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. 
But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's days when the sky was shut up three and a half years and there was a great famine all over the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to a woman who was a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. Yet none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, forced him out of the town, and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. But he passed through the crowd and went on his way. I love how that ends. Like, they're about to throw him off a cliff. They've got him back to the cliff, and suddenly he just, like, walks through the crowd. We're given no indication of how this happens, but he escapes without a, a single bruise or scratch or anything. What on earth is going on here? They, they seem to be on board with this, right? And he, and he was delivering this message. He was delivering these policy objectives and, and this motivating vision, which could unify all sorts of people. Everyone would have been invited into that. And yet, from the very beginning, like right after he says this, they, they were happy, and then they heard that he was going to be available for everyone. And apparently a, a message that is going to be available for everyone does not make everyone happy. This is a difference between uh, having a motivating vision that can unify people versus just leading with a message of unity. There have been lots of times in history when people have been unified by something, have come to consensus about something that was not good. There was a lot of consensus and unity around slavery. There was a lot of unity and consensus around racial segregation. There was a lot of unity and consensus about LGBTQ people not really being fully human and not really deserving full rights, right? So there is this difference between a message, a motivating vision that can unify people and simply leading with, well, we ought to be united. And what we see here is that Jesus was actually polarizing. His message, this good news, gospel of the kingdom of God, was a polarizing message. And yet, because it was polarizing, it meant that people who, in other social situations, may have actually, literally wanted to kill each other, they could come around and say, I might be able to get on board with that. And despite all of our differences, despite our different identities, despite our different beliefs and values, that motivating vision might be the one thing that can bring us together and help us to figure out how to live alongside one another. It is very possible as I stand up here this morning and use the words gospel and kingdom of God that uh, things come to mind, definitions come to mind that are different from the ones that I gave, where you might hear them and say, I don't think that word means what you think it means. You may have heard things around gospel, good news, uh, that were more in line with well, the gospel is about believing all of these right things 
And if you don't believe this full list of right things, then this is not good news for you. Gospel might have been actually very limiting in the, the types of people that it included. Kingdom of God even. When you hear things like the kingdom of God, you might hear things like Christian nationalism. And so it's very possible when you hear words like gospel and kingdom of God that you actually don't want to use those words anymore. And if that's you, like, I completely empathize with that. There might be others of you who understand, like, the background uh, of each of those words, what they actually mean. I don't think that word means what you think it means, but here's what I actually think it means. And so there, there are people who, like, don't say kingdom of God, but they talk about the kingdom of God. Uh, or, or they don't use gospel, but they, they, might, they might tweak it a bit to mean something else. And if that's you, I completely empathize with that as well. I completely understand it and uh, appreciate that perspective even. And yet, I would argue that those words and the concepts behind them the motivating vision that, are behind, that is behind them is too important for us just to forfeit. And so what I think we need to do is I think we need to be more radical. And by radical, what I mean is not what maybe you think that word means. Radical is, uh, its root is going back to something's roots. The root of the word radical is going back to the roots of a thing. So, when I talk about being radical, what I think we need to do is we need to get back to the roots of what Jesus' life and teachings were all about. We need to get back to the roots of what the good news of the kingdom of God actually was. We need to get back to the, good, the, the roots of what it meant for God to get what God wants, for the world to be made right, for uh, the gospel to be an invitation for everyone to be involved. We need to get back to, like, the essential thing. We need to get back to these small number of words that are a motivating vision that many of us can, can get on board with, can get behind, can go out and live out. We need to get back to, you might even say, growing goodness. Two words. That is our motivating vision as a church. I don't know. Some people might actually find that polarizing. Some people might find that insufficient. And yet that is the thing that drives absolutely everything that we do. And so despite our differences, despite our different identities, despite our different beliefs and values and ideologies, my hope and my prayer is that that motivating vision to grow goodness, to live into this calling of the good news of the kingdom of God, may that be the thing that brings us together, even and especially when we're driven apart. May that be so.